Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. What is a child? What is life? What am I to do with a life? Pinocchio asked. Geppetto pulled Pinocchio onto his knee. This might be a good time to tell you a story, said Geppetto, for this is the first thing you should know. Good stories tell us how to live our own stories. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. You are listening into my series on Aggressively Happy, and this week we're discussing the theme of Chapter 5, which is Tell Yourself a Good Story. And joining me today is someone I've been excited to chat with for a few months, uh, which is Casey Fritz. Uh, Hello, Casey. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, too, have been excited. Yes. Um, So I first encountered you because um, we have a mutual contact, Caitlin Carlson at Nav Press, and you're coming out. She's the best. She really really is the best. And uh, you have a book coming out. this spring, which I read and loved. That's a bit of what I uh, just read that excerpt from. And so when I came around to this episode, I thought Casey's the person I want to chat with about this because I think we have kindred thoughts on stories mm. and their importance. But before before we get into that, give us a little introduction to yourself, who you are, what you do, where you live, what you love, etc. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been married for 17 years this year. I have two amazing children, uh, one boy, one girl, 15, and just turned 13. Um, so I'm in the full teenager zone of life with my children. So every day is a bit of a forest fire and awesome and exciting. Um, so uh, currently, right now, we reside in the New England area. Before that, we were in Los Angeles, where I was a pastor and a church planter and started a church out there, which was still going. And amazing people. So I was in pastoral ministry for about 20 years. So starting at age 15 through pastoral training in Arizona, all the way then to what led me to Los Angeles and was part of um, a church movement on the West Coast called Reality. Uh, And so I was kind of involved with that. So Pastor Tim Chaddock and a few others. And then after those 10 years, um, I ended up here. But during those 10 years, there was a wonderful opportunity to start getting involved in publishing, writing. I had been illustrating a bunch, but as far as writing goes, I was waiting for somebody to hand me a kid's book manuscript of some kind. Nobody ever did. So I said, forget it. I'll just write my own. And totally by the grace of God, I was able to get it published through David C. Cook and did a trilogy with them, which evolved into more and more and more books and so I've been in the publishing world when I was, you know, sort of in tandem with pastoring for about 10-ish years now, which sort of brings us to this point in this upcoming book. I love that combination um, of pastoral ministry and illustration. Also, um, I, I now live by myself, and I never really listened to podcasts before living by myself. And then I was like, oh, it's weird when I'm like puttering around my house to not have like some kind of noise. <laughs> so I listened to David Tennant's, David Tennant has a podcast. And it was, it struck me how many of the people he interviews, because he just talks with various, you know, actors and yeah. creators and stuff. How many of them, the the breaking out point in their career was when 
they kept on looking for the script or the project or whatever and then they just went yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna make the project i'm gonna make the script um and that reminded me of you saying that you eventually kind of went okay i'm gonna i'm gonna write the book um that i want to illustrate and that it's amazing how that's often kind of the catalyst yeah i uh I was shocked at how much um, I enjoyed writing because that was never part of my past repertoire or even thought I could do it. And so I actually enjoyed it. And so that catalyst being something that not only launched a new career, a new vocation, but at the same time, uh, a new, I don't, I guess a new hobby of sorts, a new joy, uh, whatever you want to call it. And so I, I love that these catalysts can bring out in somebody else an entirely new trade or entirely new craft. Mm. So I'm grateful. I couldn't imagine not doing it now. I can imagine those books not in my life or in my repertoire. So, yeah. So, okay. Tell us a little bit, because I think this will be kind of the foundation for some of our conversation today about this book that's coming out um, around the time uh, Aggressively Happy, a little bit after, I think. We're, we're book yeah. twins-ish. <laughs> yeah, so this is Goodnight Classics. This is a sequel to Goodnight Tales. And so um, when I was working with David C. Cook, I got a chance to meet uh, Don Pape. I don't know if you're familiar with Don Pape at all. Mm-hmm. So Don Pape and I became very good friends. And when he had the chance to sort of become uh, editor over at Nav Press, I pitched him this idea about fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, before we got to Goodnight Classics, it was Goodnight Tales, and I was just pitching fairy tales and trying to be able to do something for children that was sort of a bedtime treasury mm. classic, fully illustrated. So that was sort of the goal in all of this. And then what happened with book one is we were sort of messing around with these ideas of what if we enabled the parents to tell the stories, and we removed words, but did redid parables of you know Jesus, but mm-hmm. illustrated them in a completely different way. So using mice and toy stores and fun things like that. And that was sort of this idea of how do we be able to give parents tools? So Goodnight Classics, Goodnight Tales was all about giving parents resources, opportunities, moments for them to be able to disciple their children using their own words, their own ideas. So that was the start of that with Goodnight Tales. So what brings us to Goodnight Classics is, is being able to take what's known, traditional, classic fairy tales. Three Little Pigs, Hansel and Gretel, Pinocchio, like what you just read, but be able to, I don't like this word, but you'll know what I mean, gospelize them Mm -hmm. in such a way, gospelize in such a way that we are helping and aiding parents be able to pull out the sort of redemption plumb lines in all of these stories, highlight them, and be able to deliver them to their children, um, not to just gospelize, but be able to do this with their own story, but with every other story from Batman to Spider-Man to Paw Patrol. If we can show them and aid them be able to do that, this should hopefully be able to do well, not only with these books, but with every other story they encounter. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And it's something that I think feels very intuitive, you know, in this, in the chapter that this week is themed off of. I talked about telling my little, you know, niece Lillian stories. And it's such a, a natural part of our, our humanness, I think, to, to tell stories, to... And it, and it has all these different functions, right? It's it's to to waste time, you know, while you're trying to get a child to eat. Yeah. It's to comfort yourself as you're going to sleep. But it's also, uh, I think, one of the fundamental ways that we that we kind of craft meaning onto our lives, or that we discover meaning in our lives. And um, yeah. and and so to to kind of 
also as Christians, we believe that there is, there is ultimately the story that we are a part of. And I think throughout my life I have encountered, um, and come to believe more fully that a lot of times Christianity is presented as kind of like a list of things that you believe that you say yes or no to, you know, this is true, this is false. Um, but more fundamentally, I think it is, it is a story. It is a narrative that we are inside of, of God's love towards us of failure and redemption. And, um, and you know, that, and that speaks to us in a much more fundamental kind of primal level, I think. And so the thing I really enjoyed about this, um, this book is it's teaching parents how to do that and kind of teaching them to be sensitive to, to the Holy Spirit already being in stories and drawing us into that. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. I think if, if we as a society, but even us and within Christendom can start to not, and this isn't true for everybody, but I did notice, or we have noticed that there are certain sects of Christianity, which demonize stories of all mm-hmm. kinds, whether that be Harry Potter to Lord of the Rings to whatever else versus being able to look at these stories and draw out their gospelization, to draw out the redemption, to draw out the hope. And so being able to see that the Holy Spirit is not within just Christian stories about Jesus doing this or about Noah putting animals on the ark, but he is within every single story out there. I I think if we can start to open that up, I think what we're going to do is be able to have children who are not sheltered, but at the same time being able to start to recognize what God is doing in their life because they can start recognize what God is doing in Harry Potter. Yeah, absolutely. If that makes sense. Yes. Also, I wrote one of, one of the chapters in my PhD features Harry Potter quite heavily um, and talks about the fact, <laughs> it talks about the fact that uh, Rowling, when she wrote Harry Potter, didn't want to tell people that she was a Christian because she felt like if they knew she was a Christian, they would know how the plot would turn out. Um, yeah. Which is just so interesting. It reminds me of, uh, have you read, I'm sure you have. Uh, you know the ideas of like Joseph Campbell, the monomyth, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So he was this influential kind of Jungian, I think he was a literary theorist. I'm remembering this kind of incorrectly, but he had the idea of the hero's journey. There are these kind of universal um, story arcs that we see in, in, in most of the most beloved stories. You know, it's kind of this circle where we, and it really, it's about facing death and resurrection that's often kind of that's kind of the arc you know and and he says this is basically wound into the human psyche that we we look for everywhere um but then you have people like lewis who basically came to faith because he read all these crazy norse myths and and he he would say you know i perceived truth in that um and that's even though it was this pagan thing, the stories themselves and the sense of desire and the sense of a longing for meaning and for resurrection, kind of, he came to believe that Christ was the true myth, you know, that whatever he found coming through these stories was, was actually closer to the truth than kind of many of the things he would philosophize about. So here's a, uh, a simple question, but I think it opens up good things. Why do you think Jesus primarily used parables to teach? Yeah, I, I love, I love the, first, I love the idea that Jesus is not only a storyteller, but probably the best storyteller. Um, I think his, his stories were so rich and yet so at the same time, so relevant 
that even the disciples struggle to understand them just shows the depth of them in the moment and how he told them. And so I, first, I just wanted to at least put that out there that this concept that we have a storytelling God, we have a storytelling Messiah, not a lecture driven, mm-hmm. you know, rule based recipe following. It, it's very narrative is something that um, I think is profound for our faith. Um, so beyond that, I mean, the way I read the parables is I see, I see first, I think they're, they're objective hmm. um, while being beautifully personally subjective at the same time. So I think Jesus was able to cross many boundaries by being objective, by showing there's understanding and by at the same time being inspirational. And I think those are probably the best stories that are written, kind of hold that trinity of objective, understanding, and inspirational all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Jesus was able to do that. And I even think beyond Jesus, I think of Nathan's rebuke of David. Mm-hmm. And I think we can see this going all the way back to the Old Testament, that there was something about that sort of trinity of storytelling that allowed people to, for a moment, exit their own snow globe of thought. Mm-hmm. and be able to see objectively faith, thought, money, sex, power, um, mm-hmm. politics to their own sin, mm-hmm. and then be able to come back into it, understanding with a newfound inspiration of the way forward or how to view the past. So mm-hmm. I, that's what I would lean towards. What are your thoughts? No, I, I think that's right. And I think, I guess part of what I think, uh, part part of why I think Jesus told so many stories is that Sometimes I think we're tempted to think that um, it was just like an easier way to illustrate a spiritual principle. But I think if that were the case, then Jesus would just say spiritual principles. Do you know what I mean? Uh, And so I I think that the reason that Jesus tells stories is that we are, we are storied creatures. Our, our lives take place in time. Uh, They take place in this web of, you know, I write in the chapter about, uh, Eugene Peterson's phrase, you know, other wills and destinies that we take place, that we live in this world where we don't just make decisions or worship God or, or choose a spouse in this kind of, you know, abstracted plane of existence. We, we make those decisions and we live this life and we, we love people around us in this complicated temporal world. And the only thing that helps us kind of understand that, I think, are stories. Stories help give a sense of pattern and shape to our experience in our life. And so I think Jesus told parables because parables are more like life. Um, they're, they're, they convey that objective truth yes. about the world, like you were saying, in a way that actually accords you know, with, with our experience. Um, and the other thing I love about the parables is that because they're not just about like some one point, one spiritual principle that we can grind out of them, they're endlessly meaningful. Do you know what I mean? You can come yes. to the same parable and get something true out of it, but you can continue to get more and more true things out of it. It's, 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 it's fecund. It's life-giving. It's, it, it never, it yeah. can never be wrung dry. Um, yeah. And, and to that, and to that point, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, I think religion begs for the bullet pointed list mm-hmm. of, of what Jesus was trying to say when he was addressing all these different topics. I think that's what religion begs for. That's what control begs for, power can begs for. But by Jesus giving the story, I think it does force our free will, our open minds, our open hearts to process things entirely different versus how do I just get this done versus how do yeah. I understand who I am in light of this? Yeah. So 
it, it requires more faith in a way than if someone just gave you a list of things that uh, you had to believe or had not to believe. Um, and I think... Yeah, and, and even... Go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I was just... I think to that point, even as we're talking, we can talk about Jesus' parables, but that sort of... is sort of transcends that to even Jesus coming into the story. And so mm. Jesus could have just sent, like we're talking about, a document of some kind or an angel just to read the scroll or whatever you want to say. But by mm. Jesus coming and living the story, especially for his 30 quiet years, Jesus yeah. coming and living the story shows you that it does take faith understanding and everything we've been addressing to even live this life versus anything else. And so, yeah, it's parables, but Jesus not only told parables, he then lived the story himself. Well, exactly. And, you know, the Gospels, these four books that are kind of at the core of our faith, are our stories. You know, it is a story of a life. Um, and yeah. and that that's, that's what feeds us. Yeah. And I love, there's a little essay by C.S. Lewis where he talks about, it's, it's called Myth Became Fact. And he kind of makes that point. He says, you know, we ha we love these stories of the dying God or, of, you know, the heroes. Uh, and we feel them to be true. But in Jesus' life, by entering into this human story, by taking on our sin, by taking on our bodies, mm -hmm. he, he kind of, it's like he turns that myth into fact. Um, and yeah. there's a great line where he says, you know, I think sometimes somebody who doesn't believe supposedly uh but feeds their soul on that story is more inside the christian way of encountering the world than someone who just has a list of things that they believe but doesn't know how to encounter the story of god's presence in the world which is a provocative yes. thing to say but i think i think i lean towards thinking it's true <laughs> i completely agree also i can hear the birds and it sounds amazing it's making every every point you're saying right now so much more powerful and beautiful. I just wanted to highlight that. <laughs> you know, I, I have my door open right now because it's a bit uh, muggy inside. Um, but I my new flat backs up to a college garden, which <clears throat> I may have leapt over the wall and uh, wandered around. <laughs> and I may have gotten in trouble with the porter. Uh, but it was worth it, and and now the birds just taunt me by tweeting at me from from the little forest behind my behind my. It just—it sounds—it almost sounds fake. It's so perfect. It sounds like you're in a Disney movie. <laughs> uh, maybe I am. Um, okay, so, so Casey, um, yeah. do you consider yourself a storyteller? And if so, when did you start thinking of yourself as a storyteller? I think. Um, I think, and I, I read this within your book, but yet naturally we all as humans as you said i think it was aristotle who said we're all story animals mm. um so we all are all telling a story we are all living a story yes but then i also think there's probably a next level to that where there's somebody who makes storytelling their vocation or profession mm. um so in one one sense yes i'm a natural storyteller as far as my life and who i am but there's another part where i'm trying to tell good stories and i'm trying mm. to tell stories in such a way that people want to read them and, and people want to purchase them and make it my profession. <laughs> and so I, I did have the realization, I actually get kind of uncomfortable and I'm trying to be mm. more comfortable with it when people said, well, you're an author. It's like, uh, I would prefer storyteller because I don't necessarily think my art is that good or my storytelling is that good, but I think combined, I think I can tell mm. a, a story and I think I can tell a decent story. Um, and I kind of, 
in some ways just constantly rip off the gospel as much as possible in every one of my stories. And Good so thing. I'm I'm kind of this I'm kind of this weird ball of wax where it's like, well, I'm just repeating every story I've ever told while at the same time trying to draw pictures with it. So mm. yes, yes, and I had the realization when I started getting uncomfortable because I started writing books and I didn't feel like an author. I had no training. I failed, you know, English 101 in high school. Um, so I started realizing, but maybe I could tell a story. Maybe I can't mm. author or write as well as I'd like at this point, but at least I can tell a story. So mm. I think that started right around my publishing career started where I started getting book deals, which is insane. Mm -hmm. And then started growing through that going, okay, how do I just develop my storytelling mm. ability? So yes, I do. <laughs> to answer that question. Yes. yes I now, what, what I love about that is it illustrates one of the points that I talked about in the book, which is that you encountered a new thing and you need to you needed to figure out a way to wind it into your story of yourself because you had not previously thought of yourself as a character who was an author. Um, and so this is kind of yeah. a process of, okay, now I'm going to ask you something I didn't send in my questions, but I think it, I think okay. you will, I think you'll be fine. Um, one of the, th I was thinking about this when I was looking at your illustrations, which are, um, they're absolutely beautiful and they're, the word that comes to mind is illuminated. Like there's this kind of glow, um, this kind of mm. play with light and there's a warmth to many of them, but you also, and I've noticed this both in this book and then also in some of your Instagram and stuff, you also occasionally like to play with the, and I don't think this is insulting to say the creepy or the dark or the, <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that fair? Is that a bad, is that a bad, uh, no, um, no, uh... <laughs> What what you think uh, might be creepy is actually a compliment. Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 I mean it as a compliment. Go, okay. go tell well, me I, more. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate this, and I actually wanted to talk to you about it and get your insight um, mm. as well. But I, I prefer mm. more visceral storytelling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I read the scriptures, and mm -hmm. I don't see anything held back. Mm -hmm. I think the brightest of light shines in the darkest of moments. Mm -hmm. And so I am, I don't know if I want to say this word, but there's a bit of obsession with the, the darkness of storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, I am a horror movie junkie to reading horror literature because I mm -hmm. find that, and you, and please call me out on this. I think I find that at least for me and how I read mm -hmm. is more true to gospelization mm. or faith or the mystery of faith than even some of the, from Christian films to mm. just classic films that we have today to whatever's being made in, in Hollywood. Mm. So I think there's more true to that, even the sense, and I'll go as far as this, and this could upset some people, mm -hmm. but I align with William Friedkin, who's the director of The Exorcist, who says mm -hmm. my movie is not a horror movie. My movie is a tribute to the mystery of faith. And I see that. and. Mm. I recognize that and I would actually agree with him. Mm. So yes, I lean towards the creepy. If you actually go look at Goodnight Tales reviews, um, I had a lot of negative reviews for my first book because it was said to be too creepy. And we gave a stern warning in the beginning of this book, if you, mm -hmm. once you get one in hand, if they haven't sent one you yet, warning to the readers that these original fairy tales that are retold mm -hmm. in Goodnight Classics are some of the darkest stories told ever of grandmothers being eaten, children trying yeah. <laughs> to be eaten. I mean, these are really dark, dark stories. And so we try to preserve some of that 
while at the yeah. same time not overdo it for children. Yep. Well, yeah, I wanted to pick up on this theme because I, um, so I, I'm glad that I intuited that this was a part of your kind of way of telling stories and, and thinking about this. And I noticed that disclaimer in the opening of this book. Um, I used okay. one of, one of my many lives was I used to be a docent at a, um, historical site in which you had to like dress up in whatever yeah. time period of the house you're in. So I was in this like 1880s house and I remember that uh, they would have us as kind of like a living history demonstration, sit outside and read fairy tales. And I remember reading the Brothers Grimm fairy tales and being like, wow, mm -hmm. these are absolutely horrific. <laughs> you know, they're, yes. They're, they're, yes. And, you know, uh, like you said, there's just these kind of very dark places. But um, I think that there's obviously, I was always a very kind of sensitive kid. Um, and so... Yeah. You know, my mom had to be kind of careful with what she read me. But part of me being sensitive was that I had this profound sensitivity to the darkness of the world and to um, to evil. Like, I think, and I actually yeah. think that a part of the reason um, I think it's important to let there be elements of darkness, of creepiness, is that the world does have evil in it. And the world does have darkness. Yeah. And... Um, and there's that great quote from Chesterton where he said, um, fairy tales don't exist uh, to tell children that dragons exist. You know, children know that dragons yeah. exist. They exist to tell children that dragons can be defeated. And I think yeah. that one of the great kind of powers of storytelling um, can be to reckon with those... I think there's many different levels you can look at it because one of them is just like the mystery, right? One of it is that there are... There's more in this world, Horatio, than um, than your philosophies tell, right? So part of that can yes. just be that we're creeped out because we don't understand the world. Um, and it's actually good to be reminded that the world is much more mysterious and bizarre than you might like to think. Um, but I think there's also an element of recognizing that actually there there are forces of evil in the world. There are dark things. And, um, and a part of being brave, a part of being a well-formed person is being willing to really reckon with those things. And I think fairy stories are a place where it's kind of this place of safety in that you can live in that world and encounter darkness and see darkness dealt with or defeated or encountered or destroyed um, and then take that back with you into the real world. I am so happy we're talking about this because this is the part of storytelling that that excites me the most because this is such a part of storytelling that I think exists more within reality than anybody might care to acknowledge or realize or witness than Westerns to rom-coms to sci-fi. Mm. Yes, I think, I think even we can go all the way back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which everybody mm. realizes the monster is not the monster. It was humans that were the monster. And so starting to spin the tale or everybody starting to realize where the sin lies, where the monstrosity lies, where the nightmares lies, and then be able to start watching these films, reading these books, hearing these, you know, these warnings that were fairy tales, being able to then start to overcome within their own life is so beautiful and so impactful that I think mm -hmm. this visceral storytelling carries some of the most powerful weights that one can carry or understand within all of literature and all of storytelling. And so I, you know, and this I was told by many people to even be careful to do this. And I took a chance and, and 
but I recently released a horror novel last year and it is a very visceral storytelling and it is not holding back, but I think it's probably my most faith-filled story told book, whatever project yet. And mm -hmm. it is because we are hitting and addressing themes of abuse and mm -hmm. divorce and brokenness and trauma and tragedy, mm -hmm. but doing it in such a way where people can go, I can relate to that. And I also see the light breaking through in the darkness. So mm -hmm. I think, Oh, I think we're aligned and I completely agree that there are some sensitivities. It's not for everybody, but for the people who need to at least step into that more, mm -hmm. there, there's a, there's a severe power within that that can be very, very helpful in somebody's journey of faith. Mm. Also, um, a fun fact is that uh, my dad, in the like series of events that led him to become a Christian, one of one of the moments was seeing the what was the nineteen sixties or seventies film, The Exorcist, like the the original one. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah, William Franken. Yeah. Yeah, and it scared the heck out of him, but he was also like, "Oh yep. my gosh, I think maybe a spiritual world exists." Um, and yes. yeah, and that's, I mean, that's actually, that has a real, a real import. Um, and I think it also makes me think that, um, you know, I think what is not acknowledged can never be overcome. And so mm -hmm. if we spend all of our time trying to ignore the deeper, difficult parts of life or reality, um, that actually those things will control us, you know? And so like you were saying with Frankenstein, part of the point is to acknowledge, that that sin that wickedness it even in ourselves um yeah for for the purpose of kind of purging what do you think the balance is between because i i'm always of the opinion that literature and and storytelling and all that i think of it as a diet so i think that we all you know we all kind of are nourished by stories which means that we shouldn't eat the same stories all the time so what do you think the balance is between um telling ourselves stories that kind of um, explore those dark things, but also exposing ourselves to beauty and light and, and kind of things that encourage us. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's probably a twofold answer to that. I think one is what we're trying to do with Goodnight Classics, which is be able to see any story from Western to romance, to Paw Patrol, to The Exorcist, and be able to extract redemptive themes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is exactly what you're saying. If I only read horror or I only read Jane Austen or I only read whatever, you know, Charles Dickens, it's not a well-balanced diet. So I think any, I think all Christians should be digesting something that is well-rounded from, and this is just a, this is probably just a light touch, but everything from biographies to mm. yes, Christian practical Christian living books to your bu upcoming book, there's a plug to whatever else <laughs> and to, to horror. I think we have to be, I think we have to be a people who are learning to have a healthy diet and a healthy diet is a well-balanced diet. Mm. And so somebody who's only sticking in these certain themes or somebody who does demonize or villainize Harry Potter or whatever else, I don't think that's quite healthy for how one processes, for how one understands their own story, for how one can even tell a story. Mm -hmm. So I'm with you. I think that's twofold answers. One, look at every story and be able to extract the light. And the second would be able to just make sure it's well balanced. So mm -hmm. I try to do that with my own from biographies to scary stories to <laughs> practical Christian living to theologic to academia books. I try to do that as much as possible. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in full agreement with you. Also, this is just my little nerdy, um, uh, my, my nerdy edition about horror. Um, I was at a 
seminar recently where it was talking about how basically the horror genre, particularly like Frankenstein, kind of emerged at a time when um, kind of atheism and, and rationality was on the rise. And it was almost a response to that because it was a way to be like, no, yeah. actually there are spiritual powers in the world. What if life is more mysterious than you know? And so while we might think of it as this really dark genre, it actually emerged to begin with kind of as a response to an anti-religious world, which is interesting. Um, probably shouldn't say that too boldly because yeah. some some gothic uh, scholar will come <laughs> on and tell me I'm wrong. But I, that, that was the gist no, that I got no, from the No, no, you're not wrong. And I, <laughs> but no, you're not wrong. And just real quickly, I'll note with you, but I would agree that most waves of horror storytelling are always in response to what's happening politically or culturally. And you mm -hmm. can take this all the way to the slashers in the seventies, to what's happening in the eighties, to the self-aware movies of the nineties. These are all very much in line to what you're saying. They're all responsive. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to um, take this to a, a slightly more personal level, which is that a part of the, okay. so I think both of us have this sense that we are, storytellers and story consumers that we need to kind of have those stories in our soul. And I think one of the reasons, and we've talked about this, that you that you need stories is that it, it kind of increases your capacity to tell your own story and to, um, and to be aware that you are in a story. Um, so I'm curious for you, do you, have you had stories um, either, I have two sides to this question. One, what were the important stories of your childhood and teenhood? And then the flip side of that is, have there been any stories that have kind of shaped the story you tell about yourself and how you live your life well um, in your adulthood? What are some important stories for you yeah. in telling your own story? And I really want to hear your answer to these questions as well. Um, mm. So I don't want to move on from that until I hear your answers. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say as far as stories, childhood stories, um, that were most important to me. And this, <laughs> this may sound crazy, mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if there is a better story for a child, at least growing up in the 80s, than E.T. Um, mm -hmm. And that may sound nuts and it may sound a bit uneducated, but I think it's one of the most powerful stories one person in my particular personal shoes could could uh, experience. And what I mean by that is I am a I am a product of a broken home. I am a product of um, severe child abuse. And there was a lot of trauma and tragedy and a lot of angst and a lot mm -hmm. of rebellion and rejection and abandonment. And then mm -hmm. along comes E.T., um, a boy who experiences the exact same thing with his siblings, frustrated with his parents and brokenness. And he's completely hopeless until an extraterrestrial breaks into his world and instills hope. And I could not think there's more of a incarnational tale than this, where me wanting to grow up and somebody, something to break into my life like E.T. and mm. give me something to live for, help me understand my story, help me understand my situation, ground me, love me for who I am. Mm. And so E.T. is so profound to me. Um, and I think all stories you know, you, we can even go back to Charles Dickens' Christmas mm -hmm. Carol. They, they have those elements of despair. Something must break in and not take you with, not take you with them, but mm -hmm. leave you there within your life to then 
make a path forward. And, and to a side note to this, this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Spielberg fan and I think he's mm. probably one of our greatest storytellers we have living. Mm. But I think this is probably what counters his other one, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, if you remember that. And I think what mm. makes that movie beautiful, but an absolute failure in the end, is it took the Richard Dreyfus character with him. Richard Dreyfus, mm. spoiler alert, gets on the spaceship <laughs> and goes with him. And, I, and it abandons their family. And so just the juxtaposition of those two stories of a broken home, mm. but one stays and one goes, just shows the power of what it means to live your story, to stay put, to understand who you are in light of the greater world. And I think E.T. E. does that. It sounds silly. It's about an alien coming and drinking beer or whatever. But it is one of the most profound stories one could possibly know or experience, especially growing up in a situation like that. Hmm. I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. And, and I think that's a picture of, you know, the fact that stories help us imagine what could be possible, even when our life makes that feel impossible. And, um, yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Um, I'm I'm trying to decide if I should share my childhood ones, uh, or my, my most recent one that's meant a lot to me. What do you want? Childhood or recent? Uh, I will tell whatever's, whatever's impacting you the most right now that you feel to share. So if that's something recent, I'd love to hear it. So I've been almost embarrassingly vocal about this particular one. So, um, everyone already knows my enthusiasm for Piranesi by Susanna Clark. Um, Mm -hmm. and have you read Piranesi? No, I know. I know, but no. All right. Well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll have to get you a copy. Um, so, (laughs) uh, so Susanna Clark did this huge, um, novel that I liked but didn't love uh, called Jonathan Strange or Mr. Norrell. And it was like a huge success. It was about these two magicians um, in the early 2000s. And it was like New York Times bestseller for weeks and weeks. And then she just dropped off the face of the earth. And then she wrote, um, she got really ill. Um, she didn't write anything for years. And then she wrote Piranesi, which was this little book that kind of serendipitously came out in the middle of the lockdown. Um, and it's about... It's, always, it's hard to explain, but it's about a man who lives in a house. It's called The House. And he thinks that he is one of only 13 humans who have ever lived. And there's only one other living human being. And he spends his time um, fishing and caring for himself and writing these meticulous journals. And he thinks of himself as a scientist. Um, and he believes that the house loves him. So he calls, you know, the, the, the beauty of the house is infinite. It's kindness immeasurable. And uh, so that's kind of the, the premise of the book. And I don't want to say too much more because I want, because it's something that you kind of have to experience. But the reason it impacted me so much, and I know it's, it's kind of an enigmatic, weird story, um, but is that it's a, it is a book that reckons with, if not, it does reckon with the darkness of life and with the um, fragility of life and evil. But it's also a book that reckons with um, kind of the instability of certainty, how we know what to be true about the world. And, and that there are kind of two ways of looking at the world that you see represented. And this isn't giving way too much in the two kind of beings. There's one that sees the world as meaningful and connected, um, that sees kind of this house as kind of a God figure, um, that, um, and and that sees life in this faith-filled, comforted, comforting way. Um, and then it looks at what do you do when that view of the world is challenged by huge catastrophic mm. trauma, basically. 
is it still possible to be a beloved child of the house um, when you have seen and encountered evil and deception and brokenness? And, um, and I think it really impacted me because I think that in myself, I kind of perceive these two ways of seeing the world, right? This faith-filled, uh, knowing myself to be a beloved child of God, you know, um, seeing the world as a pattern of meanings and beauty. Um, but also the, the cynical, skeptical, realistic in some ways, uh, person that, that kind of stumbles onto the ledge of belief and sometimes has a hard time, you know, standing there. And I think that it gave me a beautiful picture of what it looks like to, to reckon with those two ways of encountering the world and to let those wrestle within you that left me feeling profoundly hopeful and, um, and left me thinking it's still possible to be a beloved child of the house, even if you reckon with all of your doubts and your questions and, and all of the difficulties in the world. Sorry, that was rather a, a long explanation. No, but, but yeah, that's, that's I what I love. It. That's, that's what I, what I love hearing is, is allowing, um, and this might be the wrong word, but allowing a resolution to almost be put in the hands of the main protagonist the main character Hmm. allowing them to go right or left allow them to make the conclusions without spoon feeding the readers Hmm. or the audience this is what one must do and i actually hate those type of stories where it's like the best way forward is this this and this well actually putting them back in their situation after the tragedy the tragedy the sacrifice whatever it is and allowing them to make the decisions is what I see in scriptures it is the ascension it is ET getting on the spaceship leaving Mm -hmm. Elliot back on the ground so that that to me is the best kind of storytelling when somebody can exit out the side door of the party and the party still goes on versus Mm -hmm. just shutting everything down so hearing what you're saying I love love that type of storytelling oh yeah it was funny I was talking with someone and she she said she read it and she was like but it's a little bit sad and I was like yes life is a little bit sad (laughs) (laughs) um but you know a part of I think living well is learning how to how to weave those threads together in our hearts and and walk forward and tell a good story anyway Uh, and I thought it was a book that did a beautiful job of doing that and it's more of an experience you know it's something that you come out of feeling like a new person um yeah so yeah so I I really loved it let me Mm -hmm. let me ask you because somebody might take it as sad and you go yes but what mm-hmm. can what brings somebody like you or anybody else be able to go yes but how do not that i'm just saying it's just educate the population it's more mm-hmm. than that do you think there was something that brought you to the point where you go it's sad but well how does one get there in your opinion hmm. i think a part of it is <laughs> i guess a part of it is just living enough life to know that um that sometimes there will be it's sad but you know what i mean um, and, but I think the other part of it is, and I think this is the delicate thing of, you know, reading scripture and being a Christian is that I think a part of it is knowing that it's sad, but is not a lack of faith or not a lack of, and mm. that God will still meet I you and, and hold you. And, and that the very, you know, as you're saying, the very point of the incarnation is that God enters into the, it's sad, but world. Yeah. Um, and assures us, I think people are scared to go to the it's sad, but place because they're afraid that it'll just be it's sad, period. And that that will be mm. the the punctuation mark on their life. Um, but I think that, 
Christian story is a semicolon. You know, it's a it's it's a it's a movement into God's resolution of um, of of the story. And so I think I came to trust that it's sad, but once I knew that God loved me and would take care of me and not let not let the story end there, does that kind of answer the question? It does. I think it's. I think that was a great answer. I'm. I'm just. I wanted to hear your opinion of how somebody does it. I think you answered it great. That's. That's wonderful. Yeah. So um, we're winding. I'm sure we could talk on and on, uh, but we are winding near the end of uh, when I usually end these podcasts. So I'm going to uh, ask you a question that um, you in your original email uh, said that you would you would talk about in your original email to me. You probably don't remember this, but you said. Uh-oh. That you would talk about Jesus, children's books, both of which we have talked about, <laughs> um, and burritos. So, um, <laughs> to conclude this podcast, I would love to know, how do you prefer your burritos? Oh, this is this is the real reason I'm on the podcast. This is what I'm here for. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Um, <laughs> I am a massive burrito connoisseur, and I my go-to is a California burrito. Are you familiar with the California burrito? I don't think I am. Wait, that's not... No, I don't think I am. Tell me what it is. It's a probably a classic burrito with like carne asada or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the addition of French fries Ooh. and sour cream. Ooh, both things so, I love. Yeah, I want my burrito gooey, dripping, and mm. with nonsense inside of it. Mm, yes, that is... <laughs> Yes, gooey, dripping with nonsense inside of it. That is totally true. And now I feel very sad because I'm in the UK at the moment. And um, there's a there's a franchise called, and I'm not kidding, Taco Bur- I think it's called Taco Burrito. Um, but clever. yes, very clever, very on the nose. You know what you're getting. Uh, but I will say I miss those actual California burritos. Um, so yeah, I'll go I'll away with you one. Oh, oh, thanks. I'm sure that'll totally work. <laughs> Uh, Casey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find your, your artwork, your stories, and where should they pre-order your book? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, you can find me on Instagram for pretty much to see what any sort of updates are, any news, but csfritz.art. If you probably just Google CS Fritz, um, on Amazon, you'll see a list of books, but also the upcoming book, which I'm very proud of. It's about 200 pages of gospel life storytelling with a really fun, beautiful, hopefully plumb line of Pinocchio learning what it means to be a child. Um, mm. So that comes out this April, um, mm. right in time for Easter. So you could pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. But yeah, thank you so much for the plug, for being able to share my story, these books, this time. It means a lot. It's, it's been a real joy, and um, thank you for this conversation, and may you continue to tell good stories. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this week's Aggressively Happy episodes. Don't forget to tune in next week and to pre-order your copy of Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life which you can find wherever books are sold. Have a lovely week, and remember to rejoice though you have considered all the facts.